we so often are just not even honest with people about um, actually, you know, it's about um, getting married, then having a child, you know, having a job even before that. You know, there, there, is, there are some logical steps to what leads to human flourishing. And, um, and, and we, need to, we need to be open about these, these, these things. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Every single guest we've had on this show in the year and a half or more that we've been doing it is a very special person, someone who might be an elected official, someone who might be an intellectual leader. Today we have both, and we have a great friend of the United States of America from across the pond, a member of the House of Lords, a British friend, Baroness Philippa Stroud. And we're going to be talking about the future of the conservative movement, the future of our two great countries, but also amid all this negativity and no doubt some reason to be a little discouraged why there's hope for the future. My friend, Philippa Stroud, thanks for making time for this. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. Thank you. We, we sit here in Washington, D.C., mm. which is one of the great cities of the world. Uh, dare I say it's not as great as London. Uh, oh, both, it's a great city. It is a great city. Uh, both cities have their problems, which we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about. But all of that to say on behalf of all of your American friends, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It's just wonderful to be here. David and I absolutely love this city, love this nation. And uh, we love yours. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, several colleagues of, of mine mm -hmm. and a few members of our Congress, there would have been more had uh, Speaker Mike Johnson not become Speaker. He was supposed <laughs> to be part of this trip, attended this wonderful conference you put together with the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, ARC. We're going to talk about the story of ARC. You have the typical American curiosity question about what it's like to be in the House of Lords. But before we get to those things, Philippa, we always ask someone, What's their story? How is it that you're sitting here in Washington, D.C., talking about conservatism? Oh, wow. Well, as I mentioned to you, I have a very strange story, a very strange journey. So I left university and um, went to work with drug addicts in Hong Kong. And um, I had, whilst I'd been at university, I had been frustrated at the number of homeless people that I saw that I couldn't find an answer to um, how we could support them and help them. And uh, I had tried all sorts of things and none of them had been effective. And so I thought, well, do you know what? I'll go and learn from those people who are actually doing an incredible work. So I found myself in Hong Kong uh, living in um, a triad gangs, no man's land, that had been left out of the treaty between Britain and China, and therefore couldn't be policed by either, hence the triad control. And I worked with addicts, um, seeing them come off heroin and seeing their lives rebuilt. And that was really the starting point for understanding that individual transformation can happen, but that it does require huge levels of courage, because actually, the individuals who were making choices each day to build their lives differently were having to choose different friendships. They were having to choose a completely different way of structuring their days and their habits. And that took enormous courage. So uh, remarkable hope of seeing life transformation, but understanding too of the cost. I then came back to the UK and thought, do you know what, I want to continue this work. So I started 
houses for homeless people, addicts and alcoholics in, in the UK. Um, and uh, then we actually moved to Birmingham and I started houses again for addicts and alcoholics. And that took about 17 years of my life. And then I started saying, all I'm doing is picking up the pieces of social breakdown. But there is a policy tap that is wide open that is creating many of these challenges. How do I take up onto a national level the things that I've been learning at a local level about how individuals and communities can be transformed? And so I, at that moment, took a step across into public policy making. And I had met Ian Duncan Smith, who was the leader of the Conservative Party, and he had just crashed out of leading the Conservative Party. And he was asking the question, how do I use my national platform to serve disadvantaged communities? And I was asking the question, coming up from disadvantaged communities, how do I translate that onto a national platform? So we formed a partnership. Uh, We worked together for 11 years, um, creating uh, bottom-up solutions to poverty. And then uh, when Cameron became Prime Minister... Um, he appointed Ian as his Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Uh, Ian asked me to be his special advisor. I went into government with him. And after six years of serving Ian and the Prime Minister, um, uh, David Cameron um, asked me whether I'd uh, be willing to be appointed into the House of Lords. So that was my journey from literally working with drug addicts in Hong Kong to the House well, of Lords. Well, we're chuckling because uh, off camera, right before we, we started our conversation formally, you mentioned that your journey into the House of Lords was through drug addicts. <laughs> yeah, it was not a usual one. <laughs> no, but uh, what a remarkable story. And there are a lot of follow-up questions there, but the first one that strikes me is the comment you made just now in which you realized that so much of what you're doing was downstream yeah. from the source of the problem. And that seems to be even accounting for well-intentioned public policy measures. Yeah. One of the problems with public policy, do you get the sense, this is the question ultimately, do you get the sense that those of us who are in policy making, formally, mm-hmm. informally, for us, heritage on the outside, that there is a growing recognition we have to spend more time on, on the root causes of these yeah. problems? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I am profoundly convinced that we spend so much money on solutions that are not actually going to tackle the root causes of these issues. And that if actually we went more local, we invested more locally, we actually got back to the root causes um, many of which are things that, you know, uh, to do with family breakdown, uh, to do with um, a failure of the education system to pick people back up and really enable them um, to, to, to have like a second chance through the education system, um, through um, uh, mental health problems, addiction, debt, personal indebtedness and welfare dependency. These are all issues that constrain people's ability to to fulfill their own purpose. And it takes a lot for people to be able to get themselves back up again. So if we can go right right in at the root cause level, we, we, ha- we see so much more success um, with enabling and supporting people to fulfill their potential. So two sides of that coin. One mm-hmm. of them is, is more political, which will be, it's really policy, but it does swerve into politics. And I'll ask that one first. And the other one is, is about local communities, but both for your country and for mine. Do you think that the center-right political policy academic movement is doing enough 
to place the focus on the root causes of those problems, what in the United States we would call reforming safety net programs. Uh, and, and, and an additional explanation, if I may, as a conservative, not a libertarian, I believe there, and we at Heritage believe, there is a role for yeah. the state in this. Mm. Uh, hopefully it's more temporary to the extent that it can be, but there are some people who are going to need permanent assistance. All of that to say, does there need to be a reframing or a refocus by those of us on the center right in the United States and the UK around those issues? Yeah, I think I think what happens on the right is we get very absorbed about economic policy. Mm. What we have forgotten is that good social policy makes for good economic policy. And that actually, um, if we don't have good social policy, we end up spending a huge amount of money on picking up the pieces of a breakdown. Whereas actually, if we could get ahead of it in in our community to, to support people properly, then actually we, it wouldn't it doesn't cost so much money later on as well. But um, I mean, I've seen you know just extraordinary treasury decisions which um, basically wait, wait until a situation is so dire that it has to be picked up. But at that point, then it's very, very expensive to do. And the chances of seeing the sort of life change that we know would be possible if you picked it up earlier are hugely diminished. So um, early intervention is definitely the most effective way but you have to be prepared to to spend up front to save to save later on, and that you know that is the the constant conundrum with our treasury. It's yes, like, will it, we do that? It's a hard political calculus yeah. too, in addition yeah. to the policy, right? And, and particularly for those of us who are on the political right, yeah. because we we've, we've got these two competing goods, yeah. and they are both goods. Yeah. Economic freedom and and human flourishing, yeah. and sometimes their intention, especially not just in our policy, yeah. but also in our politics. Yeah. And and for people who are watching or listening to this conversation between us, who follow politics and policy in yeah. our respective countries, they know that is a some days a lightning rod. Yeah, in terms of governance in, yeah. in both countries, do you see a, a path out of that? Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, we need to start being. I'm more honest with people about what actually builds um, human flourishing. Hmm. So I don't know so much about the US context, but in the UK, we've been pretty silent that it is healthy families actually that builds um, social, you know, human flourishing. And we haven't really wanted to say this. We've been, we've wanted to say every form and every structure of family is equally equally um, leads to human flourishing. And, and, and the data just doesn't support that. But at the same time, um, uh, we, you know, obviously people don't necessarily choose different family formats because, you know, it, it, life happens to you. So then it's how do you support people in order to really flourish? But, but we so often are just not even honest with people about um, actually, you know, it's about... Um, getting married, then having a child, you know, having a job even before that, you know, there, there is there are some logical steps to what leads to human flourishing, and um, and and we need to we need to be open about these 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 things. Brad Wilcox uh, here in the United States is a great friend of of your effort with Arc, uh, which we'll talk about momentarily has done tremendous work yeah. on on what we call the success sequence, mm-hmm. and and obviously there. Are political policy implications there. 
But I want to move to the, the flip side of this coin, which is from the standpoint of individuals. In the United States, related to these problems we've just been talking about, the way the shorthand way we would talk about them is to say that Americans believe that they're they're losing grasp on the American dream. Yeah. And it has caused a discouragement, if not a despair, yeah. that is palpable. Yeah. Not just in Rust Belt communities in the United States, you have your corollaries in the UK. But the, the, the question is, is, A, is there a similar sentiment that's so palpable in the UK? And B, what do center-right policymakers need to say yeah. in order to capture the attention, the imagination of, of their countrymen to actually address these problems? In other words, at Heritage, we believe the right has ignored these people yeah. and they've ignored these problems for far too long. And at the very least, it's an existential question about political survival, but it, it ought to concern us far more in our heart yes. that we want these people to flourish. Absolutely. How do we fix it? Yeah. So I, th- I would I would completely agree with that. I mean, like we, we have um, a young generation who are losing confidence in the system of capitalism, but they the reality is they have no way of having any share in the system and you know i have three children in their in their 20s and and i i employ numbers of people in their in their 20s amazing generation they are absolutely phenomenal generation but um you know their hopes of owning a property and getting on the property ladder is pretty slim in our big cities so how do how do you locate yourself in a city where you can have the opportunities for growth and development and get on the property ladder at the same time. These are things that we have to be able to solve for this for this next generation. And, um, and we have to, uh, alongside that, we've also lost many of our industries that provided really dignified work to some of our um, some of our communities and they're looking around saying yeah I'd like to work but like where is the where is the um, uh, industry that uses my skills and my talents and I'm open to retraining and I'm open to all of these things but like uh, what am I going to retrain into and so these are these are some of the uh, very real challenges and the conversations that we're having and what was interesting about the art conference is these are these are we have the same challenges right across the Anglosphere. And we often tend to think that, oh, that's a UK problem or a US problem or an Australia problem. But actually, you know, listening to the Australians say as well, you know, we have the same concept of flyover country in Australia as you have in in the US and trying to explore what the solutions to those challenges would be. But it starts from a point of actually saying, no, human dignity is such that we can't neglect this. We absolutely have to be finding a way of ensuring dignified work for all of our employees. There's a lot there. I want to be sure before we get too far into the conversation, we talk about ARC. Yeah. And and I, I told you, and I've said this publicly in, in American media, I think it was the best conference I've ever attended. Mm. And, I, and my heritage colleagues said the same. In mm. fact, so many attendees uh, did. And, and I want to get into some of the, the conference details here momentarily, because it really is relevant to why we do what we do at the Heritage Foundation. But I think the story about how it originated is really interesting. So tell us about how this idea arc, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, came into being. Yeah. So um, uh, it, 
it kind of came out of a friendship with Dr. Jordan Peterson. And um, uh, I had invited him to speak at the Lagarde Institute where I was CEO. And um, uh, I had been working on the principles of academic freedom with, in an attempt to renew our universities and to ensure freedom of speech, freedom of academic study uh, was possible on our campuses. And I invited Jordan to come and meet some of the people that we'd been working with. So um, for breakfast, I introduced him to all the academics who had been working on this from Oxford, Cambridge and Exeter and around the UK. For lunch, I introduced him to all the politicians who had had the courage to take the bill through Parliament. And for dinner, um, we had the most wonderful dinner with journalists and culture formers in, in London. We had the most fantastic time together. And then um, he went on his way. He was doing a tour around Eastern Europe. And at the halfway through that tour, he, he rings me and he says, Philippa, everywhere I go, I'm coming across incredible people, but they're on their own and they're isolated. And, um, but they're so courageous. He said, is there a way we could, we could draw everybody together and we could, we could um, uh, host a conference and, and um, create a bottom-up alternative way of, of doing things? And we just chatted and we said, oh, wouldn't that be fun? And, you know, as you do. And then at the end of it, he said to me, do you know this chap, Paul Marshall? And I said to him, I know Paul, he's an old friend of mine. So I drop him an email going, Paul, meet Jordan, Jordan, meet Paul, have fun. You're going to love each other. And um, uh, two days later, Paul rings me saying, I'm in. And I go, you're into what, Paul? <laughs> he said, I'm into this conference that you and Jordan are doing. And I think I'm doing a conference with Jordan. And uh, so it, it kind of just happened quite organically. But then we, we had a kind of brainstorm on what were we most concerned about. And what we were most concerned about was this declinist, polycrisis, permacrisis narrative that's becoming embedded in our nations. And the fact that it's beginning to be you know, deterministic of our children's thinking they're, they're thinking, like, why is it even worth having children, bringing them into this world? Like, why would you do that when, you know, everything is about permacrisis? And, um, and uh, so we, we gathered um, uh, about 20 people from Australia, the US, the UK, Europe, around a table, really to say, when you use this word, better story, what do you mean? And when I use it, and when I use the phrase, um, you know, uh, permacrisis, what do I mean? But are we actually talking the same language here? And we were just stunned um, because we were all talking the same language. We were, we were seeing the same things in our nations and we had the same level of concern. So that was kind of step one. We then repeated that exercise with about 40 people around a table from, and these Australians would travel for these days. I and mean, like, we would say, will you come for a couple of days in London? They would jump on a plane. We now call it doing a John Anderson because John Anderson was the deputy prime minister of, of, of Australia. And he would literally, you know, in a man in his early 70s would jump on a, jump on a plane and, and come over for 24, 48 hours and to be part of this. And um, we... We did a second day of testing whether or not we would do this. And then we had a, a, a meeting with five of us in the library where we just said, OK, is this go, no go? We went around the table and we said, go, 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 
go, go. And that was in the January. And in October, we had 1,500 people from uh, 73 nations of the world uh, all there saying, we're in. We want to tell a better story, one that brings hope and one that's built on the actual foundations that have delivered our prosperity. So our Judeo-Christian foundation, our liberal democratic foundations, and we're asking the questions, what can we draw forward? What can we, what can we take forward that is relevant for our future, but that is rooted in who we are in our past? Well, and I have many highlights for me and for us at Heritage about the, are from the art conference. At the top of the list is the storytelling. Mm. And that was intentional on on your part, mm-hmm. but the best part was the informal nature of that. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the best stories that I've recounted to a lot of people, including my family, is from John Anderson, our, our mutual friend from Australia, former deputy prime minister. I had no idea that he was a farmer. Yeah. Until I shook his hand. Realized, <laughs> yeah, it's like really You're not fun. a white collar worker. <laughs> no. And I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, we started talking about this and you realize there's so many things that bind us together in the Anglosphere and beyond, but particularly the Anglosphere. <clears throat> and not that you have to be in the Anglosphere to benefit from the conference, but he and I over dinner remarked about how important storytelling is. It's one of the things that um, in addition to focusing on similarities just at sort of the sidewalk level of human interaction, yeah. like the sidewalk level. Yeah. We exit this building and yeah. we run into people on the sidewalk. Yeah. And in London and in Washington, D.C., we tend not to make eye contact. Mm. But also in terms of politics, how we do politics. Mm. And in the United States, at least, we still do a lot of door knocking. People yeah. who are running for office, this is the point. That storytelling captivates the imagination of people. Yeah. And even people going back to our previous conversation thread who might be on the brink of despair yeah. and people who think there's no one who's in political power or who seeks political power who understands my plight. Mm. But you do, you do when you tell stories. Yeah. What were your favorite stories told at the conference? Oh, there was so... That's really putting you on the spot. Oh, no, there were so many. Well, one of them we actually put into a video. And this was of a farm in Australia, picking up on the John Anderson um, farming theme, although it wasn't his farm. It was actually one of my members of staff's farm, his family's farm. And we went back to his great-grandfather and we were able to document uh, and tell the story of them pioneering this farm and how this farm, this this, uh, farm created like six bags of wheat per acre. And then the next generation, how with human ingenuity and the beginning of, of kind of tractor farming, that increased. And then the next generation, and then the next generation, how that's now feeding millions, that same farm just through human ingenuity. And um, we were trying to communicate that um, uh, an abundance mentality and that you know, yes, we might have limited resources, but when you take those resources and you match them with human ingenuity, then actually the potential is unlimited. And um, what we wanted to do was counter this kind of scarcity mentality that people that people have and show how time and time again, human ingenuity has solved the problems that we we are facing. So it's the old kind of Malthus-Smith um, argument. And you can either do that through a very academic kind of Malthus Smith, or you can do it through telling the story and demonstrating um, through a farm, 
the very real impact of of that. Uh, but you go back to um, uh, you go back to the question of like how do you tell a story for those who are very disadvantaged and whose lives are very broken? Uh, just from my own experience of working with people who whose lives are very broken and who don't think that they can ever be any different. Um, we had a, a young girl who lived with us for 10 years and who came like with more scar tissue on her arms from self-harm and from a history of, of abuse. And she went over a 10-year period on a, the most extraordinary journey of, of healing um, to the point that she is now a foster mother herself and she now fosters these beautiful children and sees their lives rebuilt and restored. And there were so many days where she thought, my life will never be amount to anything. And uh, she'll sometimes send me a text now saying, the social worker has just said, you are formidable. Uh, if my 18-year-old self had ever thought that anybody would call me formidable, um, she said, I would never have believed it. But um, seeing my life transformed now... And seeing the extraordinary impact of that on these young children's lives that they now have a hope and a future too um, is remarkable. And that's the power of storytelling. It is. So tell us, give us some insight into your crystal ball for ARC. What, what is amazing success 10 years down the road? So I think for me, it wouldn't be about the structures and the systems of ARC. It would be about the narrative that is running through the fabric of our nations and that it would be hope-filled and it would be filling our children's minds with the facts that they can, they do have a future. They, they can take hold of that future themselves, that their energy and their efforts and their agency, they will be able to build a future for their families and that that is, um, it would be a gift to them. So ARC is about um, changing the narrative that's running through the very fabric of our societies and our nations. And do you see, there's a question about the role of politics, even the political process, including in, in your own chamber, you know, the, one of the great assemblies in the history of the world, the House of Lords. What needs, how, how can politics and the political process serve that goal? Yeah. Rather than the other way around. Yeah. I think the the challenge with politics is that you always have to create, to win an argument, you have to create um, clarity about the nature of a problem. <laughs> That's hard. It is hard because if you, if you don't create the clarity about the nature of a problem, why would people accept a solution? It's like you're asking them to change something about themselves or about their community or whatever, which requires energy and effort. And like, why would you go on that journey? But lots of politicians stop with creating the nature of the problem in people's minds and don't actually then cast a vision of the possibilities and the future that we can build together. Or if they do, they don't then actually implement the journey towards that um, solution so people are just left with the nature of a problem. And uh, it's absolutely essential that not only do we really genuinely explain the nature of a problem to people, but we also have the solutions and the journey that we can go on that's real and not just narrative, 
because politicians are very good at narrative, but that it's actually a genuine journey that we can go on to get to um, a better narrative in our in our societies. It strikes me, Philip, as you say that that certainly for your country and for mine that the we've had leaders in in our respective countries who are great storytellers. Doesn't mean that they aren't firm, that they aren't tough, that they aren't courageous. Those, those, mm-hmm. all those things can go hand in hand. But that, as your country and the United States, I wouldn't say are in political crisis, but certainly political challenges, yeah, yeah. right? And th- that what what your countrymen and mine are starving for, frankly, across the political spectrum, deep into the left and yeah. far into the right, is a generation of leaders who can cast that division, yeah, and then also implement it, yeah. And, and those skills, I don't think, are that rare. You know, when you spend time in business, in the nonprofit world, in churches, just run into regular Brits and regular Americans, uh, how can we inspire this next generation of potential leaders to be those people we need? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I do think that... Um, uh, I do think that it is about uh, raising up and supporting leaders across the world of business, media, politics, the arts, the academy, to actually work together. I think our sectors have become very um, divided and, and um, sectoral. And um, one of the ways in which change really happens is when those different leaders work together towards the same, t- towards the same objectives. And it is too about creating a community of leaders who can go about that work without getting attacked and knocked out. So one of the things we've seen is is, is great leaders um, who say what everybody is thinking and then get mobbed on Twitter or mo- and they, and and it damages people. That is that is damaging to people. And so you you want to support really good leaders to keep going and to keep. Um, creating the pathway forward. And that that really is only done not when leaders are working in isolation, but when they are embedded in a community of people working together. Um, so the isolated leader um, standing on a hilltop on their own, it, I, I don't think in today's world will make it. Uh, but communities of leaders building this vision, they will make it. And one of the ways we can we can foster the development and even flourishing of those communities and hopefully the support of those leaders is through institutions. Yeah. And and it's it's a little academic to to talk about institutional life, but I think the audience of this show is used to that because it's it is my great passion yeah. as an early American historian and as a as a policy leader, if that's what I am now. But the the point is in Britain, you have a different history yeah. of institutions because and I'll let you you do the analysis, but you have a, a long history of redeeming and reclaiming and revitalizing institutions, whereas in the United States, largely because of geography, what we would call the frontier thesis in the United States, we just kept moving west because yeah. it took a long time for us to run out of land. And now that, of course, we've run out of land, there, there's no more new land to build new institutions in. We're struggling with the concept of how to reclaim and redeem institutions. So we need a lesson from our British <laughs> friends. I can't set you up better. <laughs> you can't set me up better. No, so I think um, one of the things um, that we have observed from our conversations with our American friends is that when you, um, uh, when an institution um, turns and is no longer a healthy 
institution. Uh, the mentality is, and I, I, I call it a go west mentality, is to abandon and go and create something new. And uh, we've joked that in the UK, if you do that and you just go west, you end up in the sea within about half an hour. Um, so you can't, you can't do that. But what that means is that in the UK, you have to push back deep into the institution itself and you have to reform it from within. And we've looked back through British history and we've looked at times where the health of our institutions have ebbed and flowed. But actually... Um, Roughly every hundred years, our institutions have needed to self-renew. And that's not surprising, really. I mean, that's a, a generational kind of turnover. And um, uh, people have needed to say, actually, this institution is no longer going in the way in which it should be going in. But I'm in this institution. I need to push deep into it and to restore health into it. And so our observation would be that... Um, uh, leaders of, of character with a transformational mindset, some of them will collaborate outside of their institutions on extraordinary projects, but many are required to push back and deep within their institutions to say, no, this is about restore my, my responsibility is to restore health to my to my institution. And the more people who can do that, the more our institutions will renew from from within and don't need to be discarded. I mean we have observed that you it's helpful to have the pioneers on the outside calling the standard higher, you know, and saying that um, actually, no, we can do better and modelling things. Um, but still, let's go for the renewal of our institutions. We'll take that as a lesson. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you one final question and, and, and I'll ask you, if you don't mind, to address it to this largely American audience, because you are someone who loves this country mm -hmm. deeply as we love yours but Americans, the majority of Americans right now are very discouraged. Yeah. It's very unusual for Americans. I mean, this is, it's not in our spirit, as you know well, to be anything but hopeful mm. about our future, about the future of the world. But because so many Americans, to some extent, with some good reason, have bought into that if we're not in decline, we're on the brink of it. That's also a very unusual mm. sentiment by Americans. It's dangerous it's for us dangerous. as a civil society. Mm. Why did you wake up this morning in Washington, D.C., no doubt hopeful mm. about the American future? Yeah, yeah. Oh, first of all, this is an incredible nation with an extraordinary history. And um, uh, we often go around your remarkable museums and we love learning about the history of your nation. It's a complex history. Um, it's, uh, you know, we've spent time in the African-American museums here and also down in Selma and, um, and Birmingham, Alabama. And we've, we've sought to learn about the complexity of the history and in the Native American uh, Museum as well, trying to really understand the complexity of, of, um, of this nation. But this nation... And your, the way you tell your story is incredible because it it is founded on the principles of freedom, and it is it is you also come at it with a humility of it's a story that we are still telling, and we are still bringing in the freedoms every step of the way when we discover areas that are not free. We are re restoring freedom, and the only way to progress forward, in my in my understanding. 
and, and I've said this to you before, is, is founding principle on the dignity of the human being. That the, the profound, remarkable, extraordinary dignity of every human being. And, and that is a founding principle of this nation. And then built on that is the principles of freedoms. Uh, freedom of conscience, um, freedom of um, speech, uh, freedom to exchange ideas and sharpen one another's ideas. So even where we have gone wrong or where America's may have gone wrong, the fact that you have freedom of speech and the freedom to exchange ideas means that you can self-correct along the way as well. If you shut that down through intolerance, you lose the ability to progress and to self-correct. And so I, I, I profoundly believe that if you can keep that dialogue going, that free exchange of ideas, that, that the state has the most incredible future ahead, but keeping hold of freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of the, of the exchange of ideas, that's the pathway to, to progressing. Thanks for that reminder. Philippa Stroud, thanks for making time for this. Pleasure. And thanks for being a great friend of this country. Ah, oh, total pleasure. Thank you. You bet. I told you you would enjoy that conversation. And <laughs> we will do this more. In fact, uh, my colleagues who are off camera don't even know that the next time that I go to the United Kingdom, which I try to visit once a quarter, we're going to do a whole series of interviews with British friends. They're nodding their head off camera, I think, which, which is great. But all of that to say, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for being part of this. Hopefully what you heard today from a great British friend is that there's great hope for the American future. That doesn't mean that we are dismissive toward the reality that most Americans feel in their communities and our politics, but know that we are winning and we are going to prevail. Take care of the meantime. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.